listeners, you're back in the Hit Factory. Feels like a lot has happened since the last time we sat down together. Every week feels like a month, a year, an hour, a minute, <laughs> Everything. a decade. Time is fungible in both directions. It's pa- all compressed one. and expanded at the same time. Yeah. I, I guess I, I'm realizing that this is the first time we're sitting down uh, in Joe Biden's America. This is the first time that we've recorded an episode since the inauguration. I would argue that we've been in Joe Biden's America for the last 40 years. <laughs> You're right. We've been in Joe Biden's America for a long, long time. Well, he, he, yes, was one of the central architects. He is the Colonel Sanders talking to Neo in the room full of TVs. He totally is. <laughs> he's, uh, yeah, he's that Colonel Sanders guy, but for liberalism. That's exactly what it is. He <laughs> yeah. created everything. Ergo, vis-a-vis, concordantly. Yeah, him and Bill that. Clinton. And we're kind of back... I don't know. There's just like so many things. And we'll, we'll get into this when we talk about the movie of, of the week. But this presidency, this inauguration, the whole like last two weeks have felt like simultaneously uh, ushering in a third Obama term and a third Bill Clinton term. Because yeah. we are the end of history is back, baby. Like we are squarely back in like third way centrist politics yeah and like red scare rhetoric i don't know i guess i've i've been charmed i think by just how consistent and how unified maybe like the really online political actors like granted you know younger people more very explicitly left Mm -hmm. um but i've been feeling really good about just how biting they've been towards like an adversarial towards every move that the Joe Biden administration has made so far. It's been kind of fun to watch. Um, Yeah. Especially in the face of like so much like lib shit from blue checks and like the media. Weird. It's that same like tendency of like extreme fetishization. You know, when we talked to Megan Day back in November prior to the election, We asked her the question, you know, if and when Joe Biden takes office, like, what next? What should we do? And she said pretty straightforwardly and simply, we should uh, fight. We should we should pose an adversarial force um, and push forward things that we believe in. We should not relax. So the bitingness that you're talking about, it isn't acidity for acidity's sake. What it really is when you dig into these conversations is scrutiny and accountability. Right. It's the accountability that everyone claimed on the internet that they would be constantly sort of leveling at the Biden administration. It's literally the thing we said we would do. It's, It's the thing that all of the liberals, you know, who were bullying people into vote, voting for Joe Biden were championing which is like vote him in and then push him left vote him in hold them accountable and we're seeing kind of by and large that that rhetoric was uh designed purely to like uphold the the sort of specter of any sort of left movement from you know quote unquote progressives especially a lot of them who are part of that sort of media elite and that collective of people who I don't think ever had any real interest in doing that. But. Well, well, the cultural relief is really intoxicating, right? Yeah, it is. There's something so like 
dreamy and attractive about this idea of like getting to exhale. I've had, you know, several people in my life sort of say how much relief they're feeling and sort of ask me if I'm feeling the same thing. And, you know, I'm honest in the sense that I respond and say, I'm certainly happy that our big wet maniac president is gone (laughs) and not in the White House anymore. Right. He sucks. Our big, our big miserable, disappointed boy, like our big miserable, got, got kicked out. Yeah, and that's that's a good thing. He's a maniac. He's a terrible human being, and uh, I'm really glad he's not in office anymore. And he just but disappeared. He's well, like, and well, I know that he got like you know taken off of. We haven't talked about any of this because we've been doing some largely like more apolitical films lately, yeah. and and talking to some more apolitical guests, or at least people who, um, you know, don't don't go there as often as we do um, conversationally, but there is like a void there. Like it's amazing how silent he has been. I I haven't heard anything from him. And yet I don't like, I, I haven't thought about it even at all because he's, his like ramblings were not like, I did not center those in the things that I consumed on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. And so for me, like the void is not that noticeable because I'm, looking about looking and talking about other stuff what i was going to say is you know when i respond to these people who i know and love who are expressing such a profound sense of relief and excitement around the decisions that are being made by the biden cabinet early i am honest in saying i too am happy that the big wet maniac is no longer president but that sense of relief that you're feeling is not one that I can necessarily say I feel as profoundly as you. Because, sure, the the cultural relief is there, right, of this idea of order, sort of moral order right. on, on, a, on a cultural plane of existence. But the structural problems have not changed. I still have so much anxiety about how many people don't have enough to survive in this country. Yeah. And... It's not to say, like, everyone's like, oh, give him a minute. I'm like, okay, well, Joe Biden's been uh, in our in, government for, for 40, 40 fucking, fucking years. years. Right. And so <laughs> this is not his first rodeo. I mean, Killer Mike had a great response to that, right? Where, like, people were like, he's been president for six days. He's been president for seven days. He's been president for eight days. And it's like, no, he's he's been a politician for 40 years. The dude has been here for 40 years. So that, I think, is just an, an ignorant argument. And what, what I have said to some of my friends in response is I can sort of access that relief that you're talking about to a certain degree, but it's really important to me that that relief does not become ignorance. There, that there's such a slippery slope with the center. I think it's really easy to conflate a sense of normalcy because we have a person who isn't screaming at Twitter and just saying terrible shit all day, every day, that on the surface, things feel normal, finger quotes, and that that can lead to complacency and that that ultimately leads to ignorance of the true problems that ail this country. And it's such an easy thing to slide back into. And I'm not I'm not saying that the people I've been speaking to are guilty of that. It's more just something that I'm remaining vigilant about because I think things for the most part haven't changed for me on a day-to-day basis, right? Like my life still looks and feels the same, relatively speaking. And that is a privilege. I am I am a privileged person that like 
from one president to the next, my life hasn't changed from today and two years ago. Well, but therein lies kind of like the contradiction at the heart of that same accusation or that same criticism that gets leveled at people on the left or people online who are being really critical of the Biden campaign or the, the Biden administration right now, which is on the day of the inauguration or even the day after waking up, they hadn't done anything yet. And I saw this large outpouring of people commenting on what a weight it felt was lifted from them and, and how they realized how tense they've been for four years. And it's like, well, if your life is literally the same today as it was yesterday, in the sense that the Biden administration has only been uh, in office for, you know, 12 hours, then what you are saying there is like that feeling that you felt, that sort of like animating uh, ambient sense of dread and anxiety was just that. There was nothing actually material behind it. There was nothing that was actually affecting you in any sort of profound way in terms of your well-being or or your quality of life yeah have just you, that you felt bad have you had health care for the last four years have you had enough food for the last four years have you had money in your bank account for the last four years i mean for most of the people who you know had their needs met and then some it was the taste problem the the cultural problem um and a lot of not to not to downplay it also a lot of the discord that has been sowed by that man mm -hmm. but not which we which we can't understate like there no. is i mean you know thousands of people hundreds of people maybe like br literally broke into the capitol building less than a month ago and destroyed shit and and put people in danger and people died like that is a serious thing and that was a byproduct of the discord that was sown by the former president and like that is a real thing like that is absolutely a reprehensible bad thing but also a byproduct of all of the people and institutions and companies if we're gonna get into it that enabled it for the last four years and then some and now all of these platforms and uh and organizations coming out and canceling trump or you know not saying you can't make donations to proud boys anymore great like where the fuck were you four years ago where the fuck were you two years ago it's it's total trash and i'm i'm just like i'm so like i have such a raised eyebrow with all of it and yeah. not even a raised eyebrow but just like a stink face because i'm like no you don't get to sit there and act like you are doing the right thing when you had a chance to do the right thing for a long long time and you didn't because it didn't serve your material needs it didn't it didn't prove profitable for you to deplatform these people totally but it doesn't i mean it there's certainly still a level of like liberal sycophancy that like will uh, you know, come to the forefront anytime anything bad happens to anybody like in this sort of hard right wing uh, cohort, whether it's the president or or whether it's, you know, QAnon people or the Proud Boys or any of that, like people will triumph those things as as absolute goods. And by and large, like, yeah, I think that they're correct. Like Twitter has absolutely, you know, the right and maybe the responsibility to deplatform someone like Donald Trump when totally. he said the things he had. But doing that thing when it's politically expedient and and financially expedient for you doesn't make it a, a moral and ethical decision and it should be noted too that like they're still functioning as a platform by and large for a ton of q people who have like found their way back on the platform that they're no longer uh you know attempting to moderate in any way and you've got 
crazies in fucking Congress right now, like Marjorie Taylor Greene, who is like a big time QAnon conspiracist. She was just in the news this week for uh, confronting and, and being extremely physically and, and verbally assaulting towards Cori Bush. And she's an absolute loon. Like she made up some shit about how like the the California fires were started by like a space laser that's owned by the Jews. <laughs> and like she is act she's she's insane. And she's, she's insane. Part but part of but, our government. And she got she's an elected official. She's an elected official in Congress. But the thing that's worse than that is like they have not made any gestures towards doing anything to block or to censor her, despite her sort of like feigned sense of victimhood, like this manufactured idea that she's being censored in some way. No, it's it's actually really, really upsetting to see how feckless the response is and how transparently economic the motivations are for who to deplatform and and how much to censor a person. And I guess my point in bringing any of this up, or I don't even know if I did bring it up. We just started talking about it. We just landed. We started mid-conversation. You you can't lay the blame solely at your feet for this one. Um, But I think it's really important for people whose day-to-day lives have not changed all that much that they, that we, acknowledge that. And rather than you know, deriding it, which is certainly an easy thing to do. I'm guilty of that. I think it's like important to understand that that gives you a certain amount of responsibility to be more vigilant about how engaged and entrenched in the issues you actually are, knowing that you have a certain level of privilege that allows you to be insulated from them. Like just sort of bringing up pretty horrifying but very telling statistics about the state of our country currently and the state of most people, most working class people across races, sexualities, ethnicities. I'm surprised at how many people I know who consider themselves political are surprised by those statistics. Well, it's designed that way too. Totally. You know, th- those numbers are by and large uh, either normalized or completely downplayed in most media outlets, most channels of like information that we have. Yeah. I think that this is like a, a good jumping off point into sort of the larger kind of thesis and, and why this film that we picked for today feels pertinent, mm-hmm. which is this sort of feigned sense of normalcy or these like sort of gestures towards normalcy that's not really there, right? Something that was so prevalent in the 90s, you know, this this idea of the end of history, this idea of apoliticism and third way sort of like centrists, triangulated politics that are about like a norm, a status quo, and that by and large preserve that thing to the detriment of most people while elevating an elite class that has always benefited from these things. Mm-hmm. Um, we talked about this a lot, as you already alluded to in our conversation with Megan Day, when we talked about You've Got Mail. This is another movie from 1998. Uh, it's There's Something About Mary, directed by Peter and Bobby Farrelly. And this one also does the same thing. Mm-hmm. It presents a world that is sort of uh, post-politics mm-hmm. and post-cultural sensitivities yep. in the sense that it just like, tries to completely 
disarm and sort of shake you out of your kind of calm sense of normalcy um, by presenting you with a lot of really egregious, offensive, grotesque things. But the way that it presents those things and and sort of the the lens with which we view a lot of those things is very telling in this movie. Uh, I want to get into all of that and talk about it. I do want to just briefly talk a little bit more about this sort of like idea of normalcy as it pertains today. Mm-hmm. Um, because I, I think that you're right. I, th- I think that a lot of people that we know aren't doing this out of any sense of maliciousness. Um, they're not doing it as a way of, you know, simply just like, I don't think that they thought they were lying when they said that, you know, kind of vote Joe Biden and hold them accountable. I think a, a large part of it is that there is a certain level of comfort and normalcy and just this sort of like air of a lack of hostility happening. Mm -hmm. And it's happening a lot in the media. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, I'm glad you're catching me up on news because this has been another like week or two weeks where I've been totally offline except for a few fleeting moments. No, absolutely. So I'm getting all (laughs) of my hot goss through you. Right. And I, I don't want to spend too much time on this because I do want to actually talk about the movie. I don't want to talk too much about the stock market or GameStop or Robinhood <laughs> or any of that shit because there's a lot of people who are way more informed, way smarter than us who have already talked about it. But I think that the response to it has been part of this this growing idea and this growing sort of bubble of everything is fine, everything is normal, stop worrying. Stop, where- not only stop worrying, but stop being angry yeah about stuff absolutely and you know it goes back to this sort of like liberal philosophy of just like a a politics of punishment and a politics of sort of finger pointing you know and and not ever investigating or doing anything that's sort of self-reflective or critical a lot of the things that the trump administration was um you know targeted for and criticized for during his you know four years are things that the Biden administration is also already doing the way that it's being met by the press, the way that's being met by some people who are more uh, in that centrist category is kind of dumbfounding. Um, Jen Psaki is the name of the press secretary right now. And this week during a lot of pressers about the, the stimulus checks about the, the new sort of relief bill that they want to push through Congress and specifically about Robin Hood and the stock market and these hedge funds, she was not very forthcoming. She did not have clear answers and she also uh, didn't relay any new or significant information about Biden or Team Biden's position on the matter. Mm-hmm. And yet, as I was saying, Max Burns, who is a columnist and like senior writer for The Daily Beast, tweeted this exact thing. And I just need to read it because it was, I I almost became the Joker in this moment. <laughs> he said, Jen Psaki is living proof that you can effectively dodge questions without resorting to lies, personal grievance, or manufactured victimhood. <gasps> and, and, and it was this thing that was just like, Oh my God. And it was just like the least adversarial thing I could possibly think of from, you know, this sort of like fourth estate, the idea that these people are meant to hold these people accountable. He was actually triumphing the fact that Jen Psaki was really good at dodging questions and doing it in a nice way. That she actually did a great job not answering anything. That she didn't say anything. And then there was like this other sort of like, uh, you know, media outlet who does some like videos and journalism who, uh, you know, tweeted something out that was like, 
every time Jen Saki dunks on a journalist, we're going to call it a Saki bomb. Oh, God. And her name is spelled P-S-A-K-I. So it's like hashtag. She got a hashtag, Saki bomb. Um, but it's another one of those things where it's like mm. you spent the last four years. You're talking about manufactured victimhood. Like you spent right. the last four years, like every single time anybody from the Trump administration was even remotely mean to you or dodging or, or you know, kept or, you at a or distance. Or calling out the media in some way. There was, right. there was victimization happening, right. right? And they were like, we're under attack. Yes. Journalism needs to be protected. God. It's pretty gross. And, you know, another thing about this too is, this is the only thing I'll say about the stock market situation. Saki was asked specifically about Janet Yellen, the Treasury Secretary, Made history, first woman to ever reside as the head of of the treasury. All good things. Um, she seems like a smart lady, but she, like a lot of these entrenched liberals, has a lot of deep ties to Wall Street. Wall Street. She has been paid almost a million dollars over the last couple of years by Citadel, one of the. Uh, financial backers of Robinhood, like one of the people that holds most of the, like who 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 uh, finances most of Robinhood. You know, one of these. I don't know if they're a hedge fund or just like an, a financial institution. I don't know what to call them, but Citadel is the mm-hmm. name of this thing. And she has a lot of deep ties to them. She's made tens of millions of dollars in speaking fees, talking to Wall Streeters behind closed doors. And when asked if she would recuse herself from sitting on any sort of like council or board team that would oversee regulating these hedge funders who shorted GameStop and lost a bunch of money and then were, you know, sort of bailed out by a lot of their financiers. Uh, The general comment, and I'm paraphrasing here, was sort of like, no, she's not. And she also like earned and deserves that money. So don't worry about it. And it's like, I mean, this is a clear, like, sort of, (laughs) this, this is, no, you know, <laughs> All I'm gonna say, no, no, no. It's just like it's so kind of like obvious and apparent that it's like bad, yeah, or that it's like a conflict of interest, and it's just like one of those things that just seems to get a a pass now because we're not worried about it because it's because everything's fine again, right? Well, the, the 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 people that we trust, like the the adults, are back in charge and they're playing the games, right? And you have to ask yourself honestly if a Donald Trump administration was doing the things. And answering the questions, or should we say not answering the questions, uh, and dunking on journalists, to to paraphrase, um, if a Donald Trump administration was doing these very things, would we take issue with it? My guess is yes. Most of mainstream media and most of popular opinion would be taking issue with this, but because it's happening from a lady or like from a person with a D next to their name, we don't, it doesn't smell the same to us. Can you imagine any blue check outlet cheering on a press secretary in the Donald Trump White House dunking on a reporter, even using the phrase dunk on a reporter? Or successfully evading questions like that is insane to me and i think i think that's a it was just really, like the most blatant example it was like so dark where it's like come on man well i think that's a really good the tie back to a movie like there's something about mary is really in this ideology of uh being post-political right when you exist in a in a space of centrism that 
uh, doesn't require you to, that doesn't require you to have like substantive structural beliefs that remain consistent. Yeah. The reason that movies like There's Something About Mary and the like can sort of exist in a space that feels like it's full of contradictions and, you know, rationalizing away certain things and like isn't really existing in a political world. These movies can do that because they aren't anchored to any core beliefs. Right. Well, they're they're weather vanes, right? For whatever is permissible in our society. And you have to imagine that, I mean, a lot of the things that make this movie culturally reprehensible by today's standards are things that we probably would not have reckoned with had it not been for four years of Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. You know, you think about uh, all of these sort of, you know, political movements and these activist movements that sprung up and the Me Too movement and all these things that sprung up as a result of the fear and the affront that so many people felt by the fact that someone like a Donald Trump was running the country. Yeah. Um, but at the time in 1998, those things were not driving factors of how people calculated what was deemed, uh, you know, a, a bridge too far culturally. And so this movie does a ton to reinforce a 90s status quo. And I think part of the argument that we'll get into a little bit is that in our current moment, there's this feeling of a return to that sense of, of calm waters, a la the 90s, that might actually perpetuate and bring about like a new type of this kind of movie and make this thing in vogue again in some capacity. Yeah, your, your argument is an interesting one, um, a toothy one, I should say. <laughs> um, I feel like it's it's got teeth. I don't know that I fully agree that, you know, um, these sort of like 90s uh, culturally acceptable like insults will necessarily like come back in vogue. But I do think that the comfort and relief we are talking about that a lot of of people, um, particularly those who ascribe to um, a liberal ideology. Right. And more specifically, like kind of the very what we would call like culturally progressive culturally like progressive what the rights would call like the wokies right what? or something like that like those kinds of liberals like the people who are very steeped in a certain type of identity and cultural politics i think that the relief that's coming for those people and that those people are already really fervently expressing is potentially going to lead to some laxness right there i do think you're right that there yeah. is the sort of necessary end there or a necessary outcome there is people may be feeling less offended right by certain right. things because we don't have this you know terrible actor in our faces you know behaving reprehensibly we're uh you know poised and polite and morally good america again it's an interesting it's an interesting argument to or, or thought exercise to sort of play out. Yeah, what what's a what's a necessary sort of cultural output right. and political output of this comfort that that is already being expressed by such a, a vocal mainstream population. I think that we will still have conversations very entrenched in identity and very 
you know, rooted in that being the driving and defining force to understand all things, completely ignoring class and and other, uh, you know, structural actors. But will probably really fall prey to this, you know, pantomime of unity that everyone's talking about, right? The liberal project is this big blanket of inclusion, right? We tell ourselves we're this big tent. We are not. We are serving the same people that the right wing is serving on a structural level, right? Mm -hmm. a, a, A small group of elite moneyed, a moneyed class in this country, the right tends to, uh, you know, feign that it is serving white working class people. It is not. Uh, liberals, the center, tend to, uh, you know, feign that they are uh, serving all people. Right. Well, right? A, a more diverse coalition of those things. But at the end of the day, it is all tied to, you're, you're right, the same liberal principles of like uh, meritocratic bootstrapism that like you know excludes more people than it brings in and i think that you're totally right here like you know there there is a a dialectical model here there is a synthesis that that will have transpired over the course of the last 30 years i don't think that a movie like there's something about mary is going to be made frame by frame like and 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 beat by beat but I think that we are going to like you said start seeing things get more of a pass Mm -hmm. i think that like people's cultural sensitivities and specifically feelings around um, around who is the targets of our comedy is yes. going to be, there's going to be a release there. There's going to be a little bit of, of catharsis to where it will feel okay to a, a broader public to laugh again and to laugh at certain uh, sort of core groups that uh, would otherwise generally be uh, displayed exclusively as as victims and 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 really held up as uh, untouchable in this kind of broad field of comedy. I think you're so right, and I think that that is expressly a manifestation of the fungibility of liberalism. This this thing that we're talking about, which is that it can be anything and nothing and everything all at once, right. because it does it isn't anchored to any substantive ideas or or machinations. I think we should probably get into a little bit of actual talk about the movie because the movie is very popular. I saw it when I was uh, a much younger person than I am now. I know that you did as well, Carly. Mm-hmm. And it, I think most people saw this movie. Like I remember being shown scenes of this film by my parents before I was allowed to watch the whole thing because I wanted to know what it was that they were finding so funny. And they're like, well, we're not going to show them the the ear jizz scene and we're not going to show him like the the frankenbeans but we'll show him like the the dog stuff right mm-hmm. where like the dog is electrocuted and 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 the dog is you know flies out the window and those scenes are really funny oh my god legit loling like laughing out loud guffawing at that dog scene i think that the the dog scenes are and they and they come back to it so often that it it is genuinely the funniest part of the movie it really is um but there's a lot of fun stuff here that is like bizarre and grotesque and offensive in a lot of ways that again to you know a a much more sensitive constitutions would read as completely unacceptable by today's standards or on the flip side i was thinking about this you know as we were sort of unpacking like all of the offenses that this movie makes 
there's also a point of view in which you could kind of like where this movie checks off a lot of liberal like litmus tests for inclusion. I'm not saying it does so without problems, but I think, you know, the fact that there's like an interracial marriage in this movie. Right. And there's used, like used as a point of a joke. And Keith David winds up being the only black character, I think, in the entire totally. movie. Totally. I'm <laughs> I am not making the argument that these things are done like with a level of sensitivity, but rather that like oftentimes Again, bringing this back to the ca- to the cabinet analogy, it's like, oh, that person's there. Check. Right. right? Without investigating, oh, well, is that person actually going to do the work of, you know, supporting the people that I am assuming they're representative of? And what does it say about me that I see a, you know, Asian woman and like assume that she has the interests of women and, you know, uh, Asian Americans, like, what does that say about me, right? Right, right? My point is, I think if we're approaching this movie from the same mindset that a lot of people are approaching President Biden's cabinet, it checks a lot of boxes. Yeah. If you don't investigate it further and say, like, that thing actually doesn't have the policies that support black people and or that thing actually does, like, make a really uncomfortable racial joke, right? Right. And, you know, I think that your mileage with the movie actually, like, really depends on how much you believe the Fairley brothers endorse any of the behaviors of the characters that Mm -hmm. they portray. And so, like, you know, I was listening to uh, one of the few kind of culture podcasts that talked about this movie that I could find from very recently, like, uh, you know, about a year and a half ago. And it was taking it from uh, a feminist perspective specifically. And uh, needless to say, they hate the movie, Uh, which, you know, I don't blame them. But I think that a lot of the stuff that I was hearing from them kind of misinterpreted some of the film. Yeah. Which is like, you know, oh, and we're supposed to believe that uh, Matt Dillon's character, Pat Healy, is like somehow uh, okay or like, you know, because he gets the girl. And it's like, and then we're supposed to believe that this person is fine and we're supposed to be, but Ben Stiller is nice. And honestly, like, as you watch the movie, I think we even said this to one another that, the film seems to be doing a lot and, and and going to considerable lengths to just convince us and and show exactly how reprehensible every single one of these characters is. The one thing that undoes, I think, the entire point of the film is the ending. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, this is another thing too. Like the film at first, and this is spoilers, but fuck it, this movie is also like 22 years old. Literally everyone's old. seen this movie. Everyone's seen this movie. <laughs> At the end of the film, you know, like it ends in a in a particular way where like Brett Favre shows up and and Ben Stiller's character uh, Ted like decides to give Mary up, you know, because he realizes that he just like all these other guys aren't actually in love with this woman. They just have like built her up to be this perfect ideal woman in their minds, and it makes them feel good to mm-hmm. be with her. Yep. So he says, "Be with Brett Favre, and I'm going to walk off." And he's like doing a hilarious like really heaving like cry totally and it's like if this was the end of the film this would actually be like a perfect ending Mm -hmm. because it like it it maintains i think the thematic through point which is none of these people deserve happiness (laughs) and none of these people deserve mary right right the the yeah i completely agree with you the critiques you're bringing up i think are really missing that the directorial perspective here the the narrative 
uh, narrator's perspective is is one of derision. Like, it is completely obvious that the Farrelly brothers do not think Matt Dillon's character is a good person. It is completely obvious that the Farrelly brothers, in writing this story, are doing a lot to communicate um, not only how reprehensible these people are, but also that the ways in which a lot of people dismiss this kind of behavior is also something to point out. Mm-hmm. Like there was a scene, I can't, I can't even remember what it was, but where I remember sort of on this watch thinking like, oh, I hadn't noticed that before. And what I, what I had noticed was the way the sort of conversation took place was such that I was very aware that um, this person was getting away with a lot and that other people around this person, I think it was something with Matt Dillon's character. I wish I knew what the fuck I was talking about so I could make a real argument. But, um, but that the people around him were enabling a lot of this behavior. Mm-hmm. And, and I, for the first time in seeing this movie, you know, several times over the course of many years, I was like, oh, yeah, I kind of get that they're not just talking about, like, how bad these specific people are, but also just, like, the ways in which people like this get away with bullshit all the time and the ways in which people at large enable this kind of reprehensible behavior. Right. Like, one of the most central kind of themes of this is, like, the fine line between uh, infatuation and, like, straight up, like, stalking you know yeah like weird murdery tendencies right totally and i i don't think that this film in any way uh characterizes the behavior of any of the people who go to like extreme lengths of like stalking mary i don't don't think that it says that those things are acceptable or okay ted is even like one of the few characters like ben stiller's character who really you know elicits any sort of judgment about it and is really careful and cautious about it, feeling like he's being kind of a sicko while he's doing it, but so driven by it anyway. And like, I'm not saying that that's a good thing. I'm not saying that Ted's a good guy, but I don't think that the film necessarily thinks that Ted's a good guy. Again, until the end when he gets the girl, but it's also problematized too by a really fun thing that again, um, I'm not going to say the name of this podcast because I don't want to call people out who are, you know, peers doing this thing and doing the best they can but they were very very frustrated with the character of mary and how stupid she was and oh i don't think she's stupid at all well interestingly i would actually say that she kind of is like at least not as stupid but i think that she's a very bad judge of character she's a bad judge of character i don't know that she's stupid no i don't think that she's necessarily stupid but i think that one of the things about this about you know the themes of this movie that actually does problematize the reading that this movie endorses toxic male behavior is the fact that like and this is not to say that like mary's character enables these people or it's her fault but simply that like she is a bad judge of character and the character herself probably makes a mistake in choosing ted like that is not something that necessarily is i think even uh endorsed by the film yeah that's a fair point and we have you know a rubric by which to judge her judgment, right? Which is all of these men who she has taken up with previously who are awful. The fact that she, you know, is 
falls hook, line, and sinker for Matt Dillon's character because he, you know, throws her some lines verbatim that are things she's uh, said she's looking for in a man. And then... Albeit in a very kind of fucked up offensive way he used the r word a lot yep and he and that she that that's all is needed for her to decide that this guy is great right Right. and similarly with woogie's character whom we find out later in the movie that they you know were sort of friends or maybe together in high school and college and then she had to get a restraining order and then she had to get a restraining order so yeah you're i think you're totally right that's a really good point that like we we already know that she doesn't have the best judgment. And uh, so it stands to reason that her not picking Brett Favre and uh, and not really knowing him well enough to know that, like, the thing that she was told about him was a lie says a lot about the fact that she's not actually really getting to know these people anyway and is just kind of operating on, you know, surface level markers and also strengthens the the point you're trying to make that, you know, she she probably also makes the wrong decision in ultimately ending up with Ben Stiller's character. Although we're meant to believe that it is the right decision because he's the one who's sort of selflessly... Uh, has given her up. Right. However, I will say there's a kind of more complicated reading of the ending that I don't know if I was just like looking for it or if they were actually signaling it that kind of presented his monologue at the end where he's doing the mea culpa and saying like, all of us just like, are, you know, putting you on this pedestal because we like the way you make us feel about ourselves and we don't actually love you. Like, nor do we deserve you. Nor do we deserve you. He's saying all these great things, yada, yada. And, um, and then says, and that's why, you know, what I really care about, like, what I really care about, Mary, is your happiness. And that's why I think you should be with Brett. For the first time in watching this movie, I was like, oh, is the movie trying to make me think that he did this strategically? Potentially. Like, I sort of got a whiff of that. And I was like, huh, I don't know if I'm reading too much into that. Yeah. But there was a little bit of it that felt like he maybe knew that that was what he needed to say. Right. There, The only thing that, again, counters that or or brings into question... The ending and what it's trying to say is that when he says goodbye to Warren, Mary's intellectually disabled brother, Mm -hmm. he pulls off his headphones and says goodbye to him. Mm -hmm. And we've already been told because of a couple of comedic moments that you cannot touch his ears because he gets very defensive. He gets afraid and he'll lash out physically at you and does this with everybody, including Brett Favre. Mm -hmm. And this is the first time that he trusts anyone to do so without physically attacking them and it's just a very brief thing and there's not even like i don't even recall there being like a distinct cutaway in which mary notices that that happens no they don't linger on it at all but it's almost there to kind of convince us that there is something sort of inherently pure about ted's character and and that is why warren trusts him but again it's the sword in the stone thing it's, that it i was is. bringing up right <laughs> it it's totally is the pure of heart right it's it's arthur and excalibur it's thor and molnir yeah. or captain america and molnir or whatever totally. but you know it's exactly that thing and 
the the one thing again like the, this movie just sort of like ends and you think it's a positive note but there is that air that oh maybe this is further manipulation on behalf of ted mm-hmm. exacerbated by the idea that like he is not crying like a real person cries he's crying comedically right and like for effect and that there's sort of the greek chorus played by jonathan richmond who we will talk about more because oh, we must. jonathan richmond is the best part of the movie oh my gosh um I mean, one of them, but I, I just adore Jonathan Richman. He gets shot at the end of the movie yes. and like they break this sort of like, uh, you know, it's, it's supposed to be this sort of like fantastical Greek chorus sort of interlude that stands apart from the rest of the film. Uh, but then it turns out that he's actually there and there's like another manipulative guy who's sleeping with Lynn Shay's character Magda, the neighbor, because mm-hmm. he wants to get to, to marry yeah. and then tries to shoot Ben Stiller and then ends up shooting Jonathan Richman. Mm-hmm. And then the movie collapses and ends in a credit sequence that breaks all sense of performance and all sense of illusion where everybody in the film is is singing... Uh, Build me up, Buttercup. Right. We've, we've got to talk about this. Let's let's spend a couple minutes talking about this credit sequence. Yeah, because I, I remember it being a very weird thing, and and I you know I dug into a little bit of of sort of historical information, and I don't think that there was a ton of thought behind it. I think that really what it was for was just to make sure that they established the tone, and uh, according to like Peter and Bobby Farrelly, like it's a a, a a song that they love. They would end their days of shooting playing it on a boombox and just filming the actors dancing and singing to it for fun to just sort of lift everyone's spirits after a long day um, and they cut it together into this like post-credit sequence and and largely I think it was just there to make sure that the audience left uh upbeat and and you know feeling jazzy about themselves mm-hmm. but it does serve a thematic purpose and actually like you know whether it was intentional or not, does also do the thing that, you know, killing Jonathan Richmond's character at the end does, which is pulls back the level of facade and like interprets this entire thing as performance and as something that we aren't necessarily supposed to construe with too much meaning. So I I don't know, you know, like it's hard for me to get really up in arms about a lot of the more problematic decisions made on behalf of any of the characters when so much is done at the end to give the effect of this entire thing being uh play acting make believe pretend i'm i'm putting together now that the credit sequence is a really fitting proxy for this thing that we are talking about that is uh that is problematic about liberalism <laughs> which is that you know the thing that that centrism really allows you to do is like you can exist in this space where Nothing has to necessarily have like tangible and concrete implications. Right. Or repercussions. None of this is or real. Or repercussions. Right. And that you can kind of just say, like, we're all fine. Like, you don't have to get mad about any of this stuff. Like, it's all good. Right. It's funny that you mentioned that because in in the way that this film ends and in the way that it does very much reinforce this sort of 90s and specifically like 98 sense of liberalism. It both pulls back and reveals the facade while also reinforcing the simulation. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Where it's it, it does both simultaneously. It shows you that the thing that you're watching is a falsehood, but also kind of lies to you about the nature of the reality that it's letting you back into, which is nothing is wrong. Everything's happy-go-lucky enjoy yourself 
this is the end of history. Like, this is it. Like, we have won. Liberalism is like the end-all be-all. There is nothing to confront this. There are no other ways of life. Just embrace this thing. Yeah, you articulated that much more exactingly. But I think, you know, watching the credit sequence, I, this, on this watch, I, like, looked at you, kind of had my mouth open and was like, what? What is this? Wait, what? Yeah. What, what is, is this, what? And I was, I was agape for a reason. I had a level of discomfort with it. Because one, I, I didn't necessarily remember that that was part of the movie. And I do consider it part of the movie. Mm-hmm. It wraps everything in a bow. Like you said, purposefully or not, that's what it does. Yeah, it's inescapable. Like it, it is playing within a cut of, you know, the final scene of the, the shot of the film where the, the little drummer boy is running away after Jonathan Richmond falls in the water. But my discomfort also came with the fact that I didn't know how to feel about it. Yeah. And I think that that is um, often like what's challenging about some of the, the the public discourse that happens that feels kind of like contradictory or um, not just contradictory, but also just like completely dehistoricized and like yeah. anachronistic and just like out of time and out of experience. And that's exactly what it is. Anachronistic is exactly the and right word. That's the feeling I had watching this credit sequence where I was like, I don't, am I supposed to be like, uh, happy about this? Right. Should I be investigating what's happening here? It's like, like, where does this fall in the movie? Like, is this, is this apart from, or is this a part of? And yeah, you're right. I mean, it's, it's really singular in its, specificity where like there are other films that do post-credit little sequences like in old school there are ones that do blooper reels well, at so the that's end. what i was gonna say but this isn't either of those things this isn't either of those things so at first you're kind of like oh this is like a yeah this is like a, a one of those sequences right where it's like bloopers and fa- no it's not and it's not like additional scenes right it is it is a very it it felt architected to me, which is is why your your point is such a, a brilliant one that it's, you know, pulling back the facade, but it's also reinforcing the simulation and also feels really constructed in and of itself. Like mm-hmm. I was very aware that I was being toyed with watching this credit sequence where I was like, oh yeah, like 12-year-old me would have watched this and been like, oh my gosh, this is like such a candid moment. Look. Right. It's very cute. It's very fun. And it's it's not. Like it is it is also a very like architected thing to make you feel a certain way. And I brought I brought up specifically when we were watching it that it felt a lot like the Pixar blooper sequences. Mm-hmm. Which we know are constructed, right? right? We know that they've animated these in and that's part of the fun of it, right? That we get to sort of still play along and believe that Woody is an actor and, you know, but but we're going into it knowing that it is a construction, that we aren't actually looking at computer animated images making mistakes, right? Right. And so this felt very much like that. This felt like a kind of curated bookend to the movie manipulating me to feel like it was a candid moment of coming together and oh look like this was all just in fun right but really also 
highly manufactured itself. It is a highly synthesized and refined form of manufacturing consent Mm -hmm. in that way, right? It is... Again, you're really saying these things a lot better than I am. No, I think that you're... just like coming right down on top of the nail and I'm dancing around the nail and like making fart noises around it while I do it. No, not at all. Yeah. One of the other things that I did want to talk about is specifically with the Farrelly brothers, their relationship to uh, the disabled, Mm -hmm. physically and intellectually. We should talk about that. Um, So uh, the the main character, Warren, who is an intellectually disabled person, um, who's Mary's brother, you know, we meet him when they're in high school. She's still, by and large, spends a lot of time with him and takes care of him when they're in Florida as adults. Um, He's played by... W. Earl Brown, who Dan, we, right? We know is Dan Doherty <laughs> from Deadwood, and Love I, him. I mean, unrecognizable in this. Where like I, I think I mentioned to you after the fact, and like watched a, a small like, sort of like video about his method. If you can believe that there is in fact a method behind how he portrayed this character. I mean, you can tell that he's there is a certain level of like earnestness and reverence with mm-hmm. which he is approaching the character of Warren. Yeah, well, and apparently the character is based on a real life intellectually disabled person named Warren who lived next door to the Farrelly's. Right. He actually makes a brief cameo in the movie when Mary goes to like the camp for, for disabled people. When they're like, they're having a beach day or they're something. Ha- right. right. And she like brought them like burgers or something. Right. 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 And, uh, and she, he's one of the ones that like asks her uh, to marry him. Mm-hmm. And she's like, Oh, Dolores is going to be jealous or whatever. And then he gives her kind of a, a peck on the cheek. That's the real Warren. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, the, th- there is a a consistent criticism leveled at the Farrelly's that they that this is one of their greatest sins mm. in their filmmaking, which is poking fun at and and uh, belittling the disabled. That they have some sort of fascination with them and love to poke fun at them. And I think that it's a thing that has seen some evolution over the course of their career. I can't make any sort of interpretations of of it in in terms of whether or not it is them growing and learning from their mistakes or if it's more cynical that is them trying to force themselves into a position beyond reproach and making it so that people can't criticize them right pandering to a more critical audience exactly because in their early movies like dumb and dumber like they're very quick to like make a blind boy the butt of a joke where they like duct tape together a, a beheaded bird yep. and sell it off to them for gas money. Yes. Uh, you know, they do do that. Right. And then in like Kingpin, you know, he's missing a hand and mm-hmm. they use that to a lot of comedic effect. In this movie, Warren is not played by an, an actual disabled person. And, and a lot of the disabled people in the movie are not played by disabled people, which um, is, is sort of an affront to a lot of activists and, and people at the forefront of, of the politics of, of disability and inclusion for those kinds of characters and, and, and their portrayal in film. But there is something of like a sincerity to it, you know, and, and it gently mm-hmm. warms and softens where they do start bringing more and more people who actually have uh, disabilities. Like there's a character uh, who is an actor with spina bifida who portrays a person with spina bifida and is just like a, a pretty normal character whose, whose ailment and, and disability is not a part of, the plot in any way in shallow Hal, the one that they did with jack black and gwyneth paltrow um they did stuck on you with greg kinnear and matt damon where they're conjoined twins and right. and bring a lot of people in that community and a lot of uh, physically disabled people to the forefront of that as well 
And it seems like there's almost like a thing that is, yes, a fascination and yes, something that they haven't quite learned the sort of politically correct vocabulary for yet. But there's never uh, a maliciousness. There's never a hostility and it doesn't ever really seem like they perceive these characters who do have intellectual or physical disabilities as subhuman. In fact, bringing so many of those characters to the forefront actually kind of does the opposite, Mm -hmm. which is like almost kind of normalizes the idea of disability pervading uh, culture at large, right? Like that, like that abled bodies or like flawless bodies are a facade of Hollywood and a facade of like mediation. Mm -hmm. So I don't, I mean, there's something interesting there for sure. I, I, can certainly stand with the people who who criticize this as being um, a little reductive in terms of their portrayal of a of a intellectually disabled person, and and that there's, you know, just a, a an actor without a disability portraying that person and and kind of copying and and making the motions and gestures and and animating those things. I think that the pervasiveness of people with disabilities in their movies and as you said this fascination that they seem to have um is coming from a genuine place of interest and like you said i not hostility like i've never felt that in any of their movies and i i love this idea of that you know their efforts to bring more of those characters into their stories even if they aren't necessarily doing it as like politically correctly as you know the standard would be today that that in and of itself as you said does the work of kind of breaking down the boundaries that hollywood puts uh for those people right like those Mm -hmm. those people don't populate our screens they don't populate the universes that um films make um, Especially so, when you've got like a, a tall, thin, blonde, like beautiful Cameron Diaz and like a pretty normal, average looking like Ben Stiller, you know, as as and even like Matt Dillon, who are, uh, you know, seen as attractive people. And, and when those characters are are your main characters and then you fill the rest of the screen with people who who don't embody necessarily that same idea of cultural beauty and and normalcy. Yeah, I think that does some like unspoken work. I think even in There's Something About Mary whether they do this gracefully or not is certainly up for debate, but we are meant to cringe and also find it disturbing and disgusting when Matt Dillon's character refers to the people that Mary works with as retards. Mm -hmm. We are meant to like not swallow that. And we're also meant to know that he fucking sucks. Right? Like, so I think that is evidence of the fact that of their point of view there is a certain level of of physicality that pervades a lot of their movies a lot of which is involving and dependent on people with some sort of disability and so there's that on one side of the table right but then on the other side of the table is that the characters who do not treat those people with respect and with you know a level of just like basic human decency are not characters that we feel good about right they're portrayed as bad people they're portrayed as bad people and specifically because of their treatment and perspective of people with disabilities so you know i think 
I think that's what I think about that. (laughs) (laughs) That's fair. I don't know if you noticed this, and I know it's kind of tropey at this point, but there is at like the very beginning of the film when when Ben Stiller goes to see Mary uh, before the prom and meets Warren for the first time, he's solving a Rubik's Cube Mm -hmm. and it's messed up and and there's like a quick cutaway and it comes back and he has like successfully solved the Rubik's Cube. Oh, I noticed it (laughs) because of your Rubik's Cube adventures as of late. Definitely, uh, yeah, it touched a a part of me, you know, and and I felt a a kinship to Warren in that way of, of, you know, our admiration and love for the Rubik's Cube. But, you know, it, it is another one of those things where there is a sort of sly undercurrent of maybe if not uh you know deference at least a a respect for uh you know characters of this nature who have disabilities and and a genuine reverence for their for their existence and their place in in these kinds of movies. Warren is never portrayed as stupid in this movie. I think that's really important right. um for He's... us to note. They have several moments stitched into the arc of the movie that actually uh, demonstrate that Warren is kind of the one who knows what's going on more mm-hmm. than other people, more than even Mary herself, right? right? And Mary kind of uses him as a barometer for like how to assess other people. There's that There's that scene uh, when Warren, um, before Mary does, uh, sees Ted, Ben Stiller's character, and remembers him. And says to Mary, Frank and Beans. And he's remembering the incident from 15 years prior. And Mary's like, no, you just ate, whatever. And Mary, even when she does see Ted, doesn't recognize him right away. It takes her a minute. She's like, oh, yeah, that's right. Right. And there are a couple moments like that where Warren is actually the one who's like the most clicked into what's going on. Um, And as we've said, there are certainly problems with the ways in which people with disabilities are fixated on and utilized in their movies. But I also think there's plenty of evidence to show that there is reverence and also a certain level of respect for those characters. Yeah. Yeah, You know, I saw, I saw a post one time that really summed it up for me. I think Um, that was, that said, you know, that, that the conversation around uh, disability would be very different if abled people perceive themselves as only temporarily so mm-hmm. and i thought that that was like a really poignant thing and and one of the things that i find fascinating about fairly brothers movies because i've seen a fair number of them is how often i am presented with that consideration while watching which yeah. is like a lot of these people yes may have been born this way but a lot of these you know the, the other people's circumstances were a byproduct of sheer accident in a lot of cases and yeah, you know, I, I I would like to hope that there isn't any uh, cynicism there on behalf of the Farrelly's. I think that it's actually kind of enforced rather than uh, rather than uh, swept away or, or problematized in any way by the fact that Peter, Peter Farrelly directed Green Book mm. and won an Oscar for right. it, where it just seems like they may be those people who are just like, you know, really, really clueless about like, the cultural nature of the conversation happening. So it's like, you know, and, and that movie is, I largely considered one of the worst, like best picture winners since like crash. So bad. You know, another one that dealt with race because like the Academy doesn't know how to do that. 
Yeah, even in that sense, like, I don't think that that movie is maliciously, like, approaching the idea of, like, the white savior or or anything like that. It's just, like, idiotically approaching it. And it does it accidentally. Yeah. And to me, I think that actually, like I said, sort of suggests that the nature of disabled portrayals in Fairly Brothers movies are actually a byproduct of their reverence for the characters rather than them being very manipulative and highly... uh, considerate about how to portray them in order to like not uh not be criticized yeah i would agree it's also interesting to think about how much physical trauma their protagonists often their able-bodied protagonists experience in their movies right ben stiller's character is a great example of this um, he gets beat to shit he gets beat to fucking shit he gets beat up by a cop he gets his his Frank and beans zipped up the cutaway, by the way, to that, like to the, the fake, the prosthetic prosthetic is, balls. I, is. So... I'm thinking of it now. And I'm just like, <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, he gets, and he gets beaten up by Warren. And he, he every, he's everything. got a hook in his face. Like there's, so there is, there also is something to this idea that you're talking about of kind of like the precarity of able-bodiedness that they are doing something with. Mm -hmm. They are kind of really populating their movies with images and events that are predicated upon how, how precarious our like physical existence is and how, how much injury could be caused to us at any given moment. Sometimes with, you know, laughter and other times with some, some more serious consideration. Like when, Jonathan Richmond dies at the end of that oh movie. Which is a great segue into a conversation about our favorite part of I the movie, like, Jonathan Richmond. I was like, that shit's not funny. <laughs> I was like very traumatized You were very upset it. about it. And, I, and, and you're meant to be. Like it is both hilarious and also completely startling, especially since like, you know, we've already talked about like it is, it's meant to be sort of a, a Greek chorus. It's meant to be a narrative trope that is meant to be isolated from the actual story. Like you don't know until the end that anyone else can see him. Right. And then the, the sort of, you know, bubble is punctured and so is his abdomen and he fucking (laughs) dies. Flips into like the water. It's so traumatic. It's so traumatic. But again, Jonathan Richmond, you know, for, for those who are unfamiliar, you should become familiar. He was the front man of uh, a very popular kind of proto-punk band called The Modern Lovers in the 70s and 80s, um, and then went on to a, a pretty successful and prolonged solo career. Like, I think he's even been releasing music up through, like, the 2010s. Mm-hmm. Uh, you saw him perform within the last, like, five or six years. And he is just as magical as you believe him to be. Yeah, he is such a bright spot of this movie. The music is wonderful and totally in line so with, like, good. his sort of tone and 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 his... Uh, solo work especially and he's just like when he's doing a lot of the more like latin and like flamenco inspired music too which was a, a big part of his career like in in like the he late has an entire aughts. album that's that's in spanish yeah it's just it's cool to watch and like him being there is so surprising too because as far as i can tell he's a relatively uh like hermetic and and closed off kind of person like there's a a, a video you can find on on youtube of him uh, dodging some some uh, interviewers uh, in Austin after a, a series of shows where he pretended to have lost his voice so that he didn't have to speak to them. Um, so, yeah, I mean, like the fact that he's in the movie and writing original music and, and showing his face like this is. Yeah, it's it's a it's a cool little bit. And 
one of, I think, my favorite sort of like surprise musical performances and incorporations in in like Hollywood cinema at all. He is, I think, more than people realize, certainly more than I realized when I first encountered this movie. He is responsible, so responsible for so much of the tone of the movie and so much of the kind of like universe that we're situated in. I would say a good portion of that is thanks to his music and his kind of like aesthetic, his, his particular style of singing and his particular aesthetic musically, musically, his particular lyrics, like the things that he sings about are often uh, having to do with love, you know, as Mm -hmm. is the case uh, with a lot of his, not just his um, albums from the modern lovers, but also his, his solo career having to do with love and having to do with sort of like being an alive person. Uh, And that just like situates you in such a specific headspace and heart space in this movie. And every time there's an interlude with him performing, I just had like the widest grin on my face because he is a joy to watch. He is a joy to listen to. He's kind of eccentric and quirky and a little bit shy and awkward and yet is like totally captivating. I'm going to I'm going to make a bold claim here. Okay. And say that I actually think a a huge reason that this movie was received as well and as um enjoyable and like a good time as it was and as culturally imprinted on our brain as it is, is because of Jonathan Rickman and his music. I didn't quite realize how, um, how steadily pervasive it is throughout the movie. He shows up at least four times, if not like five. And and he shows up in different costumes and elements, like where he, he is like integrated into the setting. And he's integrated into the setting. He's integrated into, into the transition and, and to the place, but also that sometimes his music is there even when he isn't. And when you are as specific a person as Jonathan Richmond is, you cannot help but leave an imprint on the thing that you are helping to create. And I, upon this most recent watch, just really realized how much he contributes to the movie um, and how much his particular perspective and aesthetic sonically and also just kind of like his worldview made me experience this movie a certain way there is and i think that this is maybe a great place to like close out with with a sort of thesis and how it's reinforced by jonathan richmond yes he is somebody who whose career in his solo outings writes music that is about a very I don't want to say simple. I want to say uh, innocent, a mm-hmm. more innocent kind of worldview, uh, a longing for an expression of life and love and existence that is at once sort of reverent for the past and a particular feeling uh, in in time and in in the world, and also of a, of an age, right? Mm-hmm. And I, for that matter, for that reason, I think that he is the perfect person to guide the tone of a 1998 highly problematic and offensive romantic comedy that you're supposed to leave with a sense of 
joy and looseness and and sort of lightness to you and and i think that like his song parties in the usa is like one that perfectly defines that era Mm -hmm. and perfectly defines i think the era that we are in now Mm -hmm. um and like i just the lyrics there and, and like the idea of you know no worries no complaining uh, no bad vibes like we are we are in a spot where you know journalists are going to get dunked on and it's going to be fun it's going to be fun and, and there's cool. and there's going to be insider trading but it's going to be fun and we're not <laughs> going to get that two thousand dollar check ever but it's going to be okay because everything is fine and there are more parties in the usa and i think with that we'll probably close with that song you may already be hearing it underneath this when i'm in the final edit we are Hit Factory. You can follow us at Hit Factory Pod. Uh, subscribe at patreon.com slash hitfactorypod. We're giving a bunch of money to Hotels Not Hospitals. If you haven't listened to it yet, listen to our introduction uh, featuring activist Edna Kozakaro. And uh, special thanks and shout out to our capitalist overlord, Linda. We uh, will see you another time. Catch you on the flip side. I know we can't have those times back again, but we can have parties. Like there were then, we need more parties in the USA. We need more parties in the USA. Could there be block parties about which I don't know? Maybe they're in neighborhoods where I don't go. Could there be all these parties down some little lane with potato chips in there and guitars? Pop, pop, pop.